Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at haciaworks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and you are listening to the Nerdette Book Club, which is just like a normal book club, except you get to read the book whenever you want, which I guess maybe means it's not like a book club at all. But anyway, regardless, we are glad to have you with us today. This month, we are talking about Maza Mengiste's novel, The Shadow King. As I say, it is a novel, but it's based on some very real history. It's about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 and the scrappy army of underdogs who fought them, some of whom were actually women. Critics loved this book. The NPR Review called The Shadow King a gorgeous meditation on memory, war, and violence. And it's actually also shortlisted for the Booker Prize for this year. So there is a spoiler-free interview with the author, Maza, in the feed. So if you haven't read the book yet, and you don't want to hear any spoilers, that's a great place to start. If you haven't read the book and you love spoilers and you want to tag along, that's great. You, We are glad to have you. And just know that we are about to unpack the entirety of this book. Today, I'm joined by Lydia Levy, who's the founder of the Omusana Review. That's a website dedicated to literature about Africa. She's also got a doctorate in African studies from Howard University and has studied a lot about African culture and development. Lydia, hi. Thank you, Greta. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm very excited to uh, discuss this great book. I am so excited to talk with you about The Shadow King. I imagine... You probably read this book understanding a lot more of the historical context than I did, yeah? Yes. So I understood the scramble for Africa, but I really didn't know the story of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. Oh, you didn't either. Interesting. I I didn't have a great, I mean, I knew like Italy had always wanted to conquer Ethiopia. They had tried once, right. but I, I did not know this story. I did not know the specifics of what happened. Oh, that's very cool. So when did you first hear about The Shadow King? When did I hear about The Shadow King? I was actually requested to review the book for the Times Literary Supplement. Mm -hmm. So I got a copy, an advanced copy of the book, and I could not put it down. Uh It was amazing. (laughs) So yeah, what were some of your initial thoughts as as you dove into it? You know, Actually, the first thing that stood out for me was the structure. It was yeah. concise, well-paced, and right off the bat, the way the characters just jump off the page. Very strong characters. Yes. Herut, the central character, and Asta, the, her boss in a way. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe frenemy, you could almost say. Yeah, yeah, that re- that's a strange relationship. Yeah. Um, but she really, she made the characters quite formidable. 
Yes, she really did. Literally and figuratively. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, you've mentioned the characters. I mean, this book is so resonant in terms of themes that I want to make sure we have plenty of time to discuss that. But I think we definitely need to discuss some of the plot. And then in the second half, we can get to some of the bigger ideas. And of course, we'll get some listener voicemails then, too. So as we mentioned, this is about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia that happened in the mid 1930s. Mm-hmm. And and as you hinted at, this was actually the second time Italy tried to invade Ethiopia. It happened. I think it was the 1890s. Right. It was about 40 years before what happens. In this right. Book. I think it was. I want to say 1887, 86. Ooh, nice. I'm not sure. We're going to quote you on it. <laughs> Don't quote me, please. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> So and then this book actually starts and ends in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we should save that part for later. I think we should start with just our well. So it starts and ends in the 70s. And so our first chapter of the book, we have Hirut at a train station with a box of photos. And that's kind of all we really know at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, and then book one starts. It's called Invasion. And that's when we're jumping back to the 30s. Hirut is just a young girl. She's orphaned. Both of her parents have died. And she becomes a maid at a house of like kind of a family friend, I guess. Yes. Um, and she she's living in a hut. Um, she's got pretty much nothing to her name except for the gun that her father gave her. Yes. And and to make matters worse, the wife of the house, Esther, who you kind of called her boss, is super jealous of Hirut. Um, because her husband took Hirut in and she thinks it's really inappropriate. And she also is mourning the death of a child that had happened a year before, like right off. I mean, it's almost soapy, like the dynamics between just these three characters. Uh, yes, it is. And um, I think that first, uh, the first chapter where you're introduced to the dynamics of Herut coming in as this orphan child mm-hmm. and Kidane and Esther's dynamic, mm-hmm. you almost feel your sympathies are almost aligned with Kidane. You almost feel like, oh, he's taking in this orphan girl. He's defending yeah. her. Right. But and Herut is presented as such a savage, you know, emotionally volatile woman mm-hmm. that you don't have much sympathy for her. Or Aster, right? Because she also is she seems irrational, don't you think? She seems also volatile, but in a different way, I think. Yes. And it's um, hidden. but It's veiled behind her grief. Asta's mm-hmm. grief. I, I think both are grieving. Herut is grieving the death of her parents, uh, the loss of home, uh, just being alone in the world. And Asta is grieving the death of her son, her only child. And you're, you're seeing this domestic drama playing out with, in the backdrop of a national, um, national drama. You know, the, the war is coming. So you're seeing that as well. Right, because it's not that much farther into the book that we have a little interlude where we meet the emperor of Ethiopia for the first time. Yes, and he he's almost a man, um, a shadow, right? He's yeah. very, he's not present. He's not engaging his advisors. He's very removed and preoccupied with almost side issues. So it... it you know, going on the theme of those shadows, you're seeing that all these 
all these issues in the background that are going to inform the trajectory of the characters. Um, so yeah. she, she weaves it very well. There's also such a tangible sense of looming dread around the invasion. Yeah, yes, absolutely. The dread of not having enough weapons mm-hmm. and not being prepared. And mm-hmm. even the idea of, you know, the servants themselves actually welcoming the Italian army because they are in a feudal society. So yeah. you're seeing these uh, pitfalls and pressure points that are going to really make the story so rich. And there's this, I feel like you, you mentioned the idea of dread. Mm-hmm. I feel it as, um, what is it? Um, conflicted loyalties. There's mm-hmm. that conflict of loyalties between a husband and wife, between this orphan child of a friend and the husband, between the class issue, the gender issue, the um, international warfare issue. So there's mm-hmm. there's just so much. I mean, she did a great job uniting all those all those things she brings up, all those themes she brings up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's so interesting to hear you use that phrase too, because I think it also is really resonant with with our Italian photojournalist who's named Ettore Navarro, and he. I mean, he's essentially a propagandist, right? I mean, he's he's part of the Italian army, but he's sent there just to take photographs of 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 how great Italy is at conquering this nation, essentially. Yes, yes. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting that he's coming to be the storyteller for the war. Mm-hmm. But at the very beginning of the book, you're seeing, you, if I could slowly go back to the beginning, of course, where Hirut, the main character, is mm-hmm. going through those photos right. and she's reclaiming that narrative of not only is she present as a participant, but she's also the witness to yeah. the propaganda. Yeah. I so think- she's, you know, she's bringing this narrative and turning it and saying, actually, you look at these pictures, but this is not the reality that happened. This is the other side of the story. Well, and I think, and I want to talk about it more later, but I think partly what makes Ettore's character so fascinating fascinating to me also is that I feel like she treats everyone fairly in this book. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even he is so filled with, with conflict and with not really being sure what he's supposed to do. And I think you could very much argue that he could have done a lot more. But I think, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just found it so fascinating, maybe especially as a journalist, to think about someone who's a photojournalist whose eye is inherently drawn to beauty, right, and to light. Yes. And then to be, you know, because of difficult circumstances in this position where you are taking pictures of of death and devastation and violence and just how inherently devastating that's got to be. Right, because he's also he's also carrying with him certain secrets. He's also mm-hmm. coming in, not fully present in the war, mm-hmm. and he's trying to find the most humane aspect of his job. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not doing it, you know. When they talk about the other soldiers who are prideful and taking pride in conquering the Ethiopians, he's actually more reticent 
with it. Yeah. He, he, he's not somebody who relishes his job at all. Um, right. And I thought, like you mentioned, I thought that was really compassionate mm-hmm. on the part of Mingeste to show him, to show his vulnerabilities. Yeah, totally. Right. And then, and you mentioned the secret that he has, we end up finding out that, that he is of Jewish descent. And, you know, in addition to this Italian invasion of Ethiopia, we're also in the mid 1930s, right, which means fascist Italy, which means the beginning of Nazism, and, you know, and and genocide against the Jewish people. So he is he's not he's not safe anywhere, really. Yes, yes. So we're kind of getting the threads of all of these different characters throughout the book. Um, so another element we have is that Aster and Hirut and Kidane and the, their cook all have to leave the house. It's not safe for them to stay there anymore. And so they kind of join this army that is, you know, going to do its best to fight against the invasion. But it's I, I used the word scrappy earlier. You know, yeah. I mean, they're using super old guns they ha- they don't have bullets. I mean, it's it's kind of a disaster. It doesn't seem like it's going to go well. Not at all. I mean, the the army was not equipped for what they were facing at all. But you know what? Even in telling that story, you see Mengeste is bringing out something different. The indigenous knowledge of we're going to resist the Italians, mm-hmm. but we have the knowledge to make our own bullets to make gunpowder. And the way Asta takes on this role as commander and she's (laughs) gathering supplies and she's going crazy around the countryside to get all these items that will be necessary for for them Mm -hmm. to survive. It was so much knowledge, you know, written into this book that I have never read a book that delved that deeply into detailing combat. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's an incredible, you know, as an African studies researcher, it's incredible to see what she brought out in terms of indigenous knowledge and really what it takes to fight a war. Yeah, well, and it felt too, I don't know, I think of so many war books as being really big picture you know you're talking about like tens of thousands of troops going across huge swaths of land often you know it's more about kind of like super high level strategy and like the the people in charge talking to each other and making orders but this book it's so much more zoomed in than that you know it's so much more focused on a handful of characters and how they're dealing with all of it Exactly. It's um, it, it's it's a it brings the picture to a micro level. You yes. know what I mean? It's yes. almost like the nations fighting this war is is takes a background, uh, yes. stance, and yes. the actual people who are engaging in these battles, you know, rises to the top. One of the scenes that I found the most striking and memorable is. So the the emperor of Ethiopia leaves. He, you know, he's terrified of what's about to happen. And it seems like he's not really engaging with things the way he should be. Yes. Uh, and he ends up, he ends up escaping to Bath. But before he goes to Bath, he is in a cave outside the capital. And it's the scene where he's listening to 
a, a vinyl record of Aida, the opera, yes. in a cave. Yes. I have not listened to the opera Aida, so uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I don't know what that opera is about. But I felt like he was deserting his countrymen. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And the sense of never in the book is he presented as somebody who is fighting, who is propelling the country forward against this enemy. He is in the shadows, in the caves. Yeah, right. Literally. L- yeah, exactly. Literally in the caves. In his head, he's somewhere else. He's not engaged, you know, in the present under this threat. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure how that ties into the, you know, what the statement was supposed to be, the comparison to Aida. But for me, that's what I took from it. Yeah. What's really interesting about Aida, I just look, I am not super familiar with it either, but I, I looked it up before our conversation and it's actually, it's about an Ethiopian princess, but it's written by Verdi, who's an Italian opera guy. Okay. Which is really interesting, I think, just given the dynamics between Italy and Ethiopia and 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 the fact that he is like in this very strange middle ground where he would rather escape to a cave and listen to a story about Ethiopia from the point of view of Italians than yeah. actually participate, right? Yeah, and maybe that goes along with the idea of who's telling this story, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. also his position as a, a man of, a ruler, the highest you could get as a person in that country, removes him from the actual conflict. Yeah, he's, he's opting out of trying to tell the story. Exactly. Even though he should be in a position where he's totally able to do that, right? Right. I'm really curious to know what Maza Mangeste thinks, oh, oh, you know, her commentary on what she was trying to say with um, with the placement of Aida. Because it, it appears several times, even towards the end. Right. Yeah, that is that would have been fun to ask her. I didn't, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Send a follow up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll have to call her up. So yeah. from there, we head into book two out of three books in this in this book. Um, book two is called Resistance. And I, I think one of the biggest plot points that happens in this section is that while everyone's at the ar- army camp, he realizes that uh, one of the dudes, this peasant farmer guy, looks a lot like the emperor. Right. Yes. And and they come up with this idea where if they dress him up and they kind of surround him with, with fanfare, with lady guards, that maybe they can... I think the idea is to do two things. One is to trick the Italians into thinking that their emperor is very present and very you know, active in trying to fight against the invasion. It also seems like a lot of it is actually for the people to inspire them to think that they haven't been abandoned in the face of what could be, you know, complete ruin. Yes. I mean, they're already aware that they are not the most well-equipped army and they're scattered 
and mm-hmm. to add on the fact that your leader has abandoned you for all sense and purpose. He's in England. Um, that would be demoralizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be a bonus. We're not going to win. <laughs> um, so it's, I loved when he got to that moment, the transformation of this peasant musician whose name is Minim, meaning right. nothing, right. Uh, yep. into a regal, you know, the, the, when they uh, um say his names not just one name but king of kings you know mm-hmm. the great the great emperor and really transforming him into this great person but i saw that transformation the same as heruta's transformation it is when she becomes the guard yeah. of the shadow king that yeah. really she takes on that persona of the soldier then yeah. she is you know formidable and can now can really engage in battle. And she doesn't belong to Asta and Kidane anymore. She is the guard of the Shadow King. And I really love that part of the story. Yeah, I also loved it because it seemed like such an important reminder that I think we we have to find hope however we can get it, however feeble it may be, right? Like, you know, sure, hope in this instance is a musician dressed up as king riding around on a horse but like sometimes that's enough you know yes and it's that counter narrative right because we're saying that Ettore the photographer the Italian soldier is coming Mm -hmm. to tell the story from the Italian side they are sending photographs of the way they're conquering Ethiopia but then you have the Ethiopians also producing their own narrative of the war yeah. And their narrative is based on this king. Our king has not deserted us. Our king mm-hmm. is here. Mm-hmm. He's in the mountainside. He's in the valleys. He's inspiring. He's inspiring people to join the war effort. So I thought that was, um, yeah, it was really rooted in hope. So from there, I think the major plot things we need to discuss happen in book three, which is called Returns. And uh, yeah, without going into too much detail, the big picture bits are that Aster and Hirut are both captured by the Italian army and there are some very harrowing scenes they end up being able to escape and and they come back with the army and the army is able they ambush the Italians during the day in this it's like the climax fight Mm -hmm. battle of the book and the horrible Italian captain who we actually haven't talked about at all, Carlo Fuccelli, who's just like, you know, a really horrible army violent person. Yes. Uh, he dies. Uh, Kidane also dies. And he turned out to be like kind of not the best either. Oh, my goodness. No. Um, and and Aster and Hirut are our champions. You know, I mean, they're they're riding on horses through this battlefield. It's it's amazing. Yes, and that's uh, that's what I I think makes this book really uh, a wonderful read, is to see two women riding into battle like they're going for it. They are the heroines of the of that scene. All right, we'll discuss some broader themes and motifs, and hear from some of you in just a minute. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. As I mentioned, the book both starts and ends in the in the 1970s, about 40 years after what what happens in most of the book. And I, I want to talk to you about how it wraps up, because I think especially speaking of of legacy, it's really important. Um, but I want to talk to you first about a couple of of bigger themes that I thought were really powerful in this book. And and one I think we were just sort of hinting at is the prevalence of sexual violence in this book, which I think will come as not a surprise to anyone, given that it is a book about war. I think part of what surprised me about it, I mean, there are some very brutal graphic scenes in this book. Yeah. yeah. And, and so much of it is actually perpetrated between, you know, like Kidane and Hirut or Kidane and Aster, or, you know, like it's, it's not just the enemy attacking the women of, this nation that's being invaded. It's, it's men in your camp, in your army who are attacking you when you're not fighting the enemy, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just everywhere. Uh, yeah, the, the rape scenes were, they were graphic, but well-written if I can say that. No, I think you can. And I think, you know, I'm always concerned about a book that involves, rape as the this is how like when I overcame this trauma in my life that's how I became a strong woman storyline because I think especially when men handle that it just feels extremely frustrating and and problematic Um, but it was something that I actually asked Maza about when I got to interview her a couple of weeks ago and we played it in that interview but I just thought what she said was so so powerful that I think we should listen to it again here is Maza talking about about violence against women in this book. I wanted to use those moments to also begin to think about the way that the body is territory, hmm. whether it's from the perspective of someone across the battle lines or from the perspectives of somebody who's supposed to be mm-hmm. your compatriot. Um, and the way that women and girls, you know, this character Hirut, but also Aster, and the place of women mm-hmm. um, within a society that's patriarchal is that we, we own every part of you. Right. We can do what we want. Um, yeah. And I wanted to show women and girls who became furious yeah. by the way they were treated and made no apologies for their fury. But I think to do that, I needed to go into the spaces where they were violated to begin to show where the courage begins. Isn't that gorgeous? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's, it's really well put. And um, yeah, you know, when I thought about the rape scenes, I, I didn't make the connection that she makes very clear, which is the territory of yeah. a person's body. 
I framed it as a theft. Yeah. This the and I I kept thinking of stealing the way Kidane steals both Hirut and Esther's humanity. That's mm-hmm. what I that's how I framed it in one of my reviews. But the way she puts it, it makes complete sense because this is this book is about stealing territories both at a state level and at a domestic level yeah well and I think it speaks so much too to the the idea of trauma and I mean I should have found the exact line but there are a couple of really I mean devastating but gorgeously written lines around the disconnect that happens in these women's minds as their bodies go through something horrible exactly where they're they intentionally just like leave what is happening behind them because they can't possibly actually face it, you know? Yes. It happens to both of them. It happens to Asta and, you know, she says she flies away and it actually happens to Herut too, who is starts thinking about, uh, I think it was sunlight or or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But so you do see like their mind, disconnect from what's happening to their body it's like the preservation of the self requires like a psychological disconnection at the yeah at at the time of impact um and you know this is quite interesting and it in a way it reminded me of this of this book by toni morrison the bluest eye Mm -hmm. there's a rape scene in that book too of the young character by I won't give the spoilers, but um, <laughs> they, there is a rape scene, and the way Toni Morrison wrote that the the rape of Piccolo, the way she handled it was with so much compassion but honesty. Yeah. It remind um, Maza Mangueste's writing reminded me, took me back to that scene. I was like, mm. you know, the way the body dis- the mind disconnected from the impact of that trauma. Yeah. So speaking of trauma, that I think is a great entry point into one of the voicemails we got from a Nerdette listener. And let's listen to it. This is Ava. Hey, Nerdette. This is Ava from Peoria, Illinois. I am calling about the Shadow King. I am finding myself really not enjoying this book. I'm only about a third of the way through, and I don't know if I will keep going with it. I'm listening to the audiobook, so maybe some of this is my fault. But I keep finding myself drifting away and not really paying attention to the story. And unfortunately, the portions that do seem to hold my attention are full of a lot of violence and trauma. And I just don't know if that is what I need in my life right now. I might just put this away for a while, maybe give it a try uh, some other time. But I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say about it. Thanks. I thought that was a really interesting point, partly because I started this book also by listening to the audiobook. It's narrated by Robin Miles, who is one of my favorite audiobook narrators. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know what it is about. I think it's the the narrative structure is just disjointed enough that it is very difficult to follow if you're not looking at it on a page. Yes. And so I could totally see and I found it much very, very helpful to actually pick up the book and be able to, you know, see the headings and all of that, because otherwise it was really hard. And then all of a sudden, 
you're just confronted with like a very difficult scene that you did not see coming, you know? Yes. Um, maybe um, it is worth, you know, when you meet a book that maybe you're not gelling with right away, maybe it is best to, you know, put it down and pick it up at a different time. Um, but I can only say that where the difficulty might have come in was definitely the, there was a few things she did. There was the introduction through um, the photographic, mm-hmm. when she was describing the photo- photographs. Yep. I thought that was very good. Um, I don't know if the chorus was necessary. Oh, yeah. that's funny because I liked the chorus much more. I loved the chorus. <laughs> you loved the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think for me, the chorus wasn't necessary because it was nice. It was a nice balance when she went from maybe she could have. I don't know. <laughs> I love that we disagree about it. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, I think the photographs served a purpose of describing what she saw. Absolutely. You know, she's not she's now telling the story from her perspective. The chorus, I really, I think it didn't need to be there. But, <laughs> but you know, you know what? R- writing is very difficult. So please forgive me. Oh my goodness! Say. I I dare not you know, suggest. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, so yeah, this actually reminds me of something that the Guardian review said, uh, which was very high praise. They said, among other things, that Mengiste makes brave choices in approach and style, but that her risks pay off. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of those approaches is, as you mentioned, the fact that not only in the beginning, but interspersed throughout the book, she describes photos. And these are actually real photos that she saw as she was researching the book. And then, as we mentioned, too, there's a chorus, which is very much reminiscent of like Greek tragedies, which have choruses who often are, you know, could be like people from the underworld or like ancestors often is kind of what it is, which I think is kind of speaks to what's happening here. Right. What I thought really worked well about it is that it to me, it spoke to to the generational aspect of trauma mm-hmm. and to the to the idea that that and I don't know I just love that idea that whatever you're going through your ancestors are are watching you do it and are singing about you <laughs> you know yeah. like I love that and it it actually speaks to something that um Olivia Moody wrote about in her review for the Palatinate she said that the chorus was as if Mengiste was willing for Ethiopia's forgotten women to become as famed as the men of Greek literature which I think is beautiful Right. And I think her root does become a very famed, she's going to become a very famed or famous character in African literature. And, you know, if the idea is to reclaim this historical memory, then she's definitely has done that. But I noticed in in the Shadow King, and Mm -hmm. there's two new recent novels that also use the course. Mm. The um, Chintu by oh, okay. Jennifer Makumbi. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, again, it's a historical novel in Uganda looking at the Chintu clan and it uses the chorus and it is a beautiful novel. I mean, it is an incredible novel. Interesting. So you think it worked better in that book than it does it in It works. One? It works really well. And mm. Namwali Sarpel, 
the old drift by namwali sorpel it also uses the the chorus in there huh. and it works really really well it's um so you you're seeing even these experimentations in african literature where these great women writers are coming up and they're bringing in this collective history they're mm -hmm. you know using these archives and retelling retelling you know old changing the old narratives and saying no actually this also happen you have omitted this and now we're bringing it back so yeah great things are coming <laughs> <laughs> we have one more voicemail this is from laura who's an assistant professor of government at colby college in maine and she actually i think she wrote a review of this book for i believe it was the washington post there are so many things i love about mazamengi stays the shadow king the evocative language that paints a vivid picture of places and times. There's a Greek chorus, but it's not Greek, it's Ethiopian. And it's ancestors or some kind of all-knowing spiritual force who helped to move the story along. But my favorite thing about The Shadow King is how it tells a more complete story of war by centering women's stories. Researchers who study this know that women always play important roles in war, but all too often don't get the glory for their sacrifices and heroism. Cities build statues of men not women. But here's a story where Herut saves the day by saving the morale of the Ethiopian people, helping her to survive and them to persevere until the Italians are gone. I loved The Shadow King. It had me going up to strangers in bookstores, and if they so much as glanced at the title, I was right there urging them to buy it. As soon as I finished it, I immediately got my hands on a copy of Mengise's first novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze. It's about Ethiopia in the 1970s, when a Marxist military coup deposed the emperor Haile Selassie. You should read that one, too. I just love that image of her, like, harassing people at the bookstore about it. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And I would, too. It's worth reading. It's, <laughs> she, she definitely hit it on the nail there. It's a great book, really worth reading. Um, and I... I I mean, I can't say enough. I can't sing its praises enough. Mm. See, you need a chorus to help you sing. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. So one thing we like to ask our guests for book club discussions is what you would rate this book. So like out of, out of five stars, I, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say because you've just been gushing about it for the last hour or so. But what do you think? How many stars would you give The Shadow King, Lydia? This is a five star. Absolutely. Yep. For me, it's a five star book. Yeah. You, we, it's, I mean, you could tell the research that went into this oh is gosh. incredible. She must yeah. have sent, spent years in archi archives and libraries getting that these, um, first-hand documents. Mm -hmm. I think I would give it four um, because I did find it very difficult at times. Um, and I, 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 sometimes I was a little concerned about the way the pacing was going, mm -hmm. but in the end, I think it's such an empowering story. And I mean, obviously just based on the conversation we've had, there's just so it's just so rich, you know, it's so lush. There's so much to unpack about it, which is just such a pleasure. Yes. And I think that makes it kind of the perfect book for this too, right? Because it, it's just so, it's such a perfect book to really discuss what's happening in it. Yes. I, 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 I enjoyed it. And I, and you know what, I think I also read it with somewhat of um, academic 
background coming mm-hmm. in having read many books and um seeing that you know there's she does such a fine job i think it's her engagement with the historical documents that really stands out for me yeah that makes sense so before i let you go for people who read this and loved it and are thinking wow there is not nearly enough african literature that's based on historical events in my life what are like two other books that you would recommend that that kind of have a similar sensibility to this one that you think well first i would recommend chimamanda ngozi adichie's half of the yellow sun mm-hmm. um it revisit revisits the war the civil war in nigeria okay um the other book that i would recommend is not necessarily a war story okay. but it is a story of what happens to the person who survives war and mm. it's the beautiful things the heaven bears by Dina Mang- Mangiste same last name as uh-huh. Maza Mangiste now that story looks at a character Stefanos who is a child during the 1974 revolution in Ethiopia oh, wow. is expelled is exiled to the United States and is reliving memories of his life wow. in Ethiopia. Uh-huh. Um it is a beautiful book of this you know traumatized man and how he tries to cope with a, a separation from his homeland and his people. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations and for chatting about the Shadow King. Oh my goodness, it was so much fun doing this with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Lydia Levy, what a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we got to do that. Lydia Levy is the founder of the Omusana Review. Be sure to check it out. It's O M U S A N A. All right, that's it for this month's book club. Our October book selection is Can't Even: How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's by Anne Helen Peterson. I am a millennial, though I hate to admit it, uh, but I will say I am here for conversations about burnout, especially in the now time. So I think this is going to be a great one. Um, also, if you haven't read Anna Helen Peterson's BuzzFeed article about burnout, that's a great place to start. I'm sure if you just search BuzzFeed burnout, you'll find it. So you can hear the author chat for that one on October 16th, and then the panel discussion two weeks later on October 30th. That is the last Friday in October. Do your homework, unless you're feeling burnout, in which case, don't fucking do it. Take a bath or something, whatever you got to do. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.